Well, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Mother. It has got a great ongoing dialogue between Albert Brooks' character who's divorced and his mother who's constantly embarrassed and explaining away the fact that he is divorced. Uh, Debbie Reynolds continues to embarrass him and he gets her back throughout the uh, movie by turning to folks and saying, he's divorced, and many, many times. But it does seem to be a stigma of our clickbait for today, which is the idea of a broken marriage. When a man or woman are separated, we publicly grieve. You know, what a shame. But behind closed doors, it's always the stuff of salacious gossip. We immediately leap to conclusions about who caused the split, what happened, what's going to happen to who, and who's going to get the most uh, when it goes public. And who will go public with their main squeeze later on in the year. Divorce often uh, creates great ingredients for clickbait artists to peddle their headlines, controversy, secrecy, lust, love, money. Whenever there's a celebrity split, the paparazzi and yellow journalism swarm the scene like sharks to chum. I'm amazed that even though I don't keep up uh, that much with these things, just walking through celebrity news in the uh, Kroger or uh, Kmart aisle, you find out, uh, I know a surprising amount about the marital troubles of Katie Holmes and Johnny Depp and Ben Affleck and Gwen Paltrow and even Hulk Hogan, I mean Hulk Hogan, uh, as he comes in. Even the world's most uh, proper household has been touched by divorce. The humiliating sting of it, before her death, the split of Princess Diana to Prince Charles was fodder for newspapers and magazines on both sides of the Atlantic. Though we still love the juicy headline, uh, divorce has become fairly commonplace in the era of no-fault divorces. In the midst of that, I bet you if I took an informal poll right now and said, what is the divorce rate in America, what do you think most of us would say? 50%. That's a statistic we hear all the time. Half of marriages end in divorce. Starting in the 1970s, when no-fault divorce laws were first enacted, the divorce rate rose to record highs. The feminist movement helped give new legal rights to women, and many long-suffering wives had their first opportunity to escape abusive husbands. As baby boomers rushed to experiment in open marriages, uh, free love and a more liberal moral code, a notion of traditional marriage looked more and more like it was fading from relevance. A drive down any interstate shows a host of billboards advertising divorce attorneys eager to help legally kick that pesky spouse to the curb. And, of course, the biggest hit songs are often about breakups, sob stories, and sour relationships. Adele's success is clearly linked to the decline of love in modern society. And so if you believe in clickbait and you believe what the headlines say, it's clear that happy marriages are in short supply and that love has gotten a really, really bad name recently. I don't know if you saw Wedding Crashers, but uh, that particular scene is uh, just a reminder of, I think, a common myth in our society that marriage is the problem, that marriages don't work, that most of them fail, and that if you're having trouble, it's not your fault, it's not your spouse's fault, it's the whole idea that we're meant to live with one person for life is the problem. And we're going to look at that today because that is a clickbait that we see all around us today, and that statistic... That statistic that says that 50% of marriages fail is absolutely statistically wrong. And yet it is a statistic that has grabbed the attention and can be repeated by almost everyone today, but it's not rooted in facts. In fact, it's uh, usually the thing presented by newscasters in ominous tones with grave, worried looks on their faces. The assumption being that if you or your friend or a child files for divorce, or marriage license, there's a 50-50 chance they're going to be back in that courtroom within just a few years. Unfortunately, it's like comparing apples to oranges, because we're going to break this down for a second. When people cite the 50% number, they're usually misquoting the divorce, uh, marriage-to-divorce rate, or ratio, 
or more simply, the comparison between the number of marriages performed each year against the number of divorces filed in the same year. The problem with that number is that it's comparing apples to oranges. It's a statistical hack, as we'll see. See, a marriage is a state of being that can go on for an indefinite number of years, while or even till a spouse dies, while a divorce is a finite act. Simply put, when looking at those numbers, you have to consider the serial divorcees, folks like Elizabeth Taylor, Zsa Zsa Gabor, you know, aberrations that skewed the statistics. So even if you scoff at these numbers and throw out the aberrations, where do we end up landing? What's interesting, the National Center for Health Statistics, which is the agency uh, where these numbers typically come from, say that uh, where we get to 50%, they stopped analyzing divorce rates back in 1996 due to budget cuts. So at best, the data is 20 years old, and at worst, it's made from faulty math and bad reporting. Several states like California, Indiana, Georgia, and Minnesota don't even bother to collect divorce statistics. So let's throw out the data for a moment. And let's look at a number that's more accurate and up-to-date, more encouraging and a whole lot worth committing to memory. 72% of those who have gotten married are still married to their first spouse. 72%. And of the 28% that are remaining, some of those ended in death, not divorce, meaning widows are mixed in with that 28% that are no longer married to their first spouse. Almost three-quarters of marriages are going strong, And even though it's not a very enticing headline, it's definitely worth learning more about, which is what we're going to do today. Let's pray together. Father, we know that many of us here in this room are uh, happily married, and we just ask this morning that this message will be a confirmation of why it's uh, continuing to be worth fighting for. Others here today, we've been married for a while, but it's been a bad year, it's been a bad week, it's been a bad day, and we are contemplating whether or not our marriage is worth fighting for. Other of us today, Father, we're coming in and we've been through a divorce. We're feeling the guilt and the shame of that. And Father, I ask that you would uh, be that blanket of love and forgiveness, that you would give hope that the pain that was experienced in a previous relationship can be avoided again because of the hopeful statistics and truths you offer to us. And all these things, Father, we ask you to give us a vision for the hope of marriage as we explore this together. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at some shocking statistics when it comes to the most up-to-date research when it comes to divorce. And yet how that research and how these principles only work if we play them out. Even Dr. Phil, who recently went through a divorce, allows us to get disillusioned by the idea that anyone, if Dr. Phil can't make it work, how can any of us make it work? Even in his book, Relationship Repair or Rescue, he cited another guy, who did a statistic that is just shocking. In fact, the more I've looked into it, the more shocking and unbelievable it is. If you want to drop your divorce rate to 1 in 10,000, 1 in 10,000 is for couples who pray out loud together once a week. That's cheap marriage counseling right there. If you pray out loud together, and that could be as simple as in bed at night, talk about your day for 30 seconds, you talk about your day, hold hands, could be pray quietly and then squeeze amen or squeeze amen. Just the act of praying out loud together once a week and your divorce rate drops from 50-50 to 1 in 10,000. And you've been through a divorce. If you had friends who have been through a divorce, if your parents were divorced, you know the truth. It is one of the most painful experiences in your life. As a friend of mine once said, who I worked with, he said, Chad, it's like the person who knows you best 
stands up in open court and says, I never want to see you again. There's no way to express that kind of pain. And if you want to avoid that kind of pain for yourself and your family, one staggering statistic is praying out loud together once a week can drop your rate to 1 in 10,000. But there's more good news uh, about ways in which we can make marriage work. Did you know, according to her book, The Good News, of, good news About Marriage, Shanti Feldhahn is a Harvard-trained uh, researcher who writes on marriage. In her book, The Good News About Marriage, she said the divorce rate is not 50%. In fact, it's never even been close to that. She found herself writing a blog about marriage and quoting the, the well-traveled 50-50 statistic, and she began to dig into that with her Harvard-trained research mind. And she found that not only is it not 50%, but divorce rates have been declining over the past 30 years. More than that, she found the statistic I cited earlier, that 72% of those married are still married to their first spouse. And of the 28% remaining, those include widows who did not end through divorce, but ended through death. She also found that only 3 in 10, 3 in 10, 30%, including those who have been married multiple times, have experienced divorce. So why is that idea of 50-50 so well-traveled? Well, like many urban legends, it's easy to remember. But the problem with this particular myth and this particular urban legend, this particular clickbait, is it can be devastating in a very practical way. Because let me tell you, I've been married 22 years Marriage is not easy. To quote Princess Bride, anyone, love is pain and anyone who tells you otherwise might be selling something. The idea of getting in a relationship with somebody different from you, with a different background, with a different personality, with a different family system, it's going to be difficult. And you're honest if you're willing to say that at least for me, once or twice a year, I've got my finger on the, the light switch of my emotions saying it's just not worth it. It's not worth the effort. It's too different. We're too different. There's too much incompatibility. You just always have your finger on the light switch willing to go, it's just not worth it. It's just too difficult. And then you say, well, you know what? If 50% of marriages end in divorce, I guess we're just the unlucky ones. We'll try it again. So this myth cause you to, to, one, give up, or for many people today, our kids and our grandkids, they're giving up on the whole idea of marriages because most of them don't work anyway, or at least half. Why even try something that's made to fail? Shanti Feldhahn was talking to several uh, 20-year-olds at a college and discussing these statistics. As she's discussing this idea that 72% of people are still married to their first spouse, she talked to this one girl, she said, you know, we've been... I guess they were in the 30s. We've been living together for 11 years instead of getting married because if you live together instead of getting married, you're never lost to the other person. You don't ever have to have that experience. But I didn't realize it could be so good. I didn't realize the statistics were so good. And they began to reconsider whether or not marriage was something to pursue. And in her research, what she found is that couples fail when they begin to have no hope. And this statistic... This urban legend just drops into all of our lap the idea that in general there's barely any hope. And what she found is that when you think the pursuit of a relationship is futile, that futility ends in inevitability. It's the self-fulfilling marriage prophecy that says this. When I don't think we're going to make it, I give less effort. And surprisingly, we then don't make it. You see, when I think I'm not going to make it, then I end up saying, well, then why try? Why keep trying? Why keep fighting for this? 
and therefore the very act of not fighting and not pursuing it, I end up giving less effort and therefore we end up not making it. And the Bible gives incredibly practical, hopeful advice on how you can make marriage work. On how you can fight through the seasons of marriage. And whether you're going through the fall or the winter or you're in a spring and summer, it's easy to be married during spring and summer. We all wish it was summertime in our relationship all the time. But marriage has its seasons. And it's during those seasons that there are two factors God gives us, a cling factor and a become factor that teach us how to do this. And my hope today is that, one, we can fill you with hope. Whatever stage your marriage is in, that you can be filled with hope that actually it's worth fighting for. Two, if you're single again, if you've been through a divorce, if you're you're newly divorced, you don't want to have this happen again, do you? I want to give you some advice so in that next relationship you can set yourself up for success. And third... Our kids and grandkids are inundated in every TV show, in every movie. It's like every movie is about falling in love and getting married. It's like the plot line. And the very next plot line is marriage never works. You're always fighting. It's really miserable. Why would you want to do this? And with a culture that inundates our kids with the idea that marriage doesn't work, we've got to be armed with the facts to model a good marriage, to model a persevering marriage, but also show the statistics that come against this urban legend. Number one, the first factor, how do we cling? Well, the Bible has something fascinating to say. It describes marriage as a development of partnership, that God made two that were different to come together as one. It says you need to cling, or the word in the Bible is cleave to one another, which means your marriage is worth fighting for, but it's going to take uh, an attempt uh, by, by, by you to cleave or to fight or to cling to one another through the different seasons of marriage. Here's what it says in Genesis. God introduces the idea of how men and women were created. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And God took out one of his ribs. It was out of one of his ribs, he closed up the flesh in its place. Before we move on, it's kind of interesting. I was talking to a friend who attends here. Um, He said, You don't really believe in an actual Adam and Eve, do you? I mean, you seem like a relatively intelligent guy. How can you believe in the fantasy story of talking snakes and Adam and Eve I said, well, I do believe that Adam and Eve really existed. I do believe what the Bible says is true, but I can understand why it sounds a little crazy. If it's true, then a couple things should happen. One, if we really came from two people, Adam and Eve, that should show up in our genetic structure. And if you're familiar with the Human Genome Project, um, Christian guy who wrote the book, actually, is the National Science Counselor for our country. In the, the Human Genome Project, they actually untangled and discovered that there's only one race, the human race, and genetically, we are actually all come from a man and a woman. It's, it's written into our genetic code. In fact, they, not me, call that person you know, biological Adam and biological Eve, just based on the genetic code. The thing, second thing that's interesting to me is Moses is writing about this idea that God took a rib out of a man to form woman because it was a partnership that came from side to side. And what we found scientifically in the last 50 years is there's only one part of the human body that actually reproduces itself. I mean, there might be more, but at least they found that one of the body parts that regrows itself in human beings is a rib. And isn't it interesting that Moses would write down or that God would know and he would write down and we would discover that the one part of the body that if surgically removed, a rib will regrow itself. A friend I was talking to said that can't be true. And he's a researcher and a scientist, and he emailed me back a few weeks later, or a few days later. He's like, oh my goodness, that is true. I still don't believe in Adam and Eve, but that's fascinating that what you said 
that is interesting that Moses and God would pick that. So he forms the two of us different, but also to be oneness in the midst of it. And the passage goes on and says, here's the, the secret to fighting for your marriage, to clinging. Here's what it says. Next, next slide. The rib which the Lord God had taken away, had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And again, this is structured in the Hebrew in the form of a poem. It's a song. He basically, like every good man who sees a naked woman, bursts out and becomes a poet. And he suddenly sings a song about the beauty of his wife. And this is the song he sings. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she's taken out of man. And then he says, here is how this relationship, these two equals, partner designed to come together. Here's what the secret of clinging is. One, you need to leave your mother and father. We've got a whole series developing in this in November. But let me just give you a little piece of that. Part of success in marriage is learning how to leave your mother and father's patterns. Meaning your mom and dad had some rhythm or some dance that worked for them. You go home every Thanksgiving and Christmas and you say, I don't know how that dance works for them. Uh, they make marriage look really miserable, right? But if you're not careful, you will always end up repeating their mistakes. You will bring what they did into your marriage, how they handled conflict, how they handled money, how they handled stress. So there's a conscious decision has to be made when you go into marriage. And even if you've married 20 years, you may not have made these conscious decisions. So you can still make those. To say, I'm going to honor my parents for what they did well. Thank you. We want to take this with us. But we're also going to leave some things behind. The dance that worked for mom and dad will not be the dance that we're going to have. I don't want to handle stress that way. I don't want to handle conflict that way. I don't want to get attention only by being sick all the time. I don't want to get attention by, by complaining all the time. We're going to decide what's our dance going to be. And this little phrase, to leave your father and mother, causes us all to say, I've got to reflect on what is the baggage that has come into my marriage, and what am I going to consciously decide not to repeat the patterns of in my marriage? Because many of us, one of the things that keeps us from clinging is that we're not clinging to each other because we're still clinging to find approval from our father or from our mother, or we're still trying to, to live under the, 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 the purse strings or live underneath the, the, the control of a mom and dad. And even though we'd say, we don't want that to happen, it's happening right in the center of our marriage. So part of clinging is learning how to leave your father and mother and break those patterns. The second part is how to be joined and this is the word cleave, how to cling to your wife, how to cling to your husband, to say whatever conflict we come up against, and there's going to be lots of them, and whether you're married in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, you can never predict what's coming. But what you can say is we're going to cleave, we're going to cling. It's always going to be us against it. And it might be our marital conflict. It's us against it. How do we adapt to this? It's us against that circumstance. It's us against this, this unknown. How do we cleave? How do we cling? To our wives and our husbands. That they might become one flesh. And there's a process of becoming we'll talk about as well. But three stages. We've got to leave. Examine the patterns that we've adapted or been passed down to. Choose the ones we're going to bring with us and the ones we're not very consciously. Two, we've got to learn how to cling that it's us against the problem. And three, how to become, which we'll get into in a moment. 
Now, here's where Shanti Felhon's research is very encouraging. Because sometimes it's like, you know, Chad, it's just not worth fighting for. It's just not worth the effort. Sure, maybe your marriage is easy. Maybe that person's marriage is easy. It's just too difficult to do. But here's the encouraging thing. Shanti Felhon, in her research, she found this. Number one, 80%, 80% of married people are happy. Like, I wish I could find some of those people because I no 80%, which means, yeah, you might be catching somebody at a bad day or a bad moment at the bar. You may be catching somebody who's going, oh, man, this is tough. I'm not saying it's not tough. But in general, when you weigh the difficulties against the joys, the ups versus the downs, 80% of people statistically said that they're happy in their marriage. Most people would marry their spouse if they could do it over again. Well, that's encouraging. Because you watch every TV show and every movie, and you hear about all the difficulties, and we laugh because we go, you know, we've had that fight, oh, we've had that fight, oh my goodness, yes. But most would say, you know, despite all the challenges, despite all the difficulties, despite all the stuff we've been through, I'd still want to marry him again. I'd still want to marry her again. And here's even more good news. If you're in the most miserable, difficult valley of your marriage, if you will cling, if you will stick with it, if you will fight through the winter, the data shows that five years later, two-thirds of the people who were at the lowest low were incredibly satisfied in their, mar- satisfied in their marriage five years later because they fought through that difficulty. And, and the way in which they leaned on each other, fought for each other, tolerated each other, put up with each other during that season, five years later, two-thirds of them went from being the most miserable they'd ever been to the most satisfied they've ever been. You say, like, well, I'm probably going to be one of the one-third, so why try? But, you know, you've got a good chance of being part of the 66%. And, and what I think the research shows, what the Bible said is, this is something in life worth fighting for. And divorce rates are not on the way up. They're actually on the way down. If you look at the statistics, they've actually been decreasing over the years since 1981. So my encouragement is... Cling. Cling to each other. Do you remember that bad movie by Sylvester Stallone, Cliffhanger? That was a bad movie, but I, I just remember that image of him just sort of holding on to the cliff. And sometimes when you go through a difficult time of marriage, you're like, all I got is my fingertips here. I mean, there was a time I felt like we were all, we were both in it together, you know, everything, both arms, both feet, the whole body. I feel like right now I'm at a fingertip moment. And I would say cling. Cling during those moments. Grab hands during those moments. If you're saying, well, she's not trying as much as I am, he's not trying, he's given up, you be the one that clings. So I'll show you in a moment. If just one person clings, it can actually change the relationship. If you do a few of those other pieces, those leaving, those cleaving, and those, those hanging on to one another during the difficult times. If you're like me, there's not a lot of things worth clinging to, right? So before you choose to fight for something or cling to something, you're doing a calculation in your head. Is it worth it? Right? There's nothing wrong with that. Is it worth it? And if if marriages, 50% of them end in divorce, then you're probably saying, it's sort of a crapshoot anyway, 50-50. It's probably not worth the effort. But if 72% of people who are married are glad, if 80% can be happy, if five years from now you have a 66% chance of really having the most satisfying relationship, then it might be worth clinging to. And if it might be worth clinging to and you weigh that cost, you say, then maybe it's worth fighting for. 
I remember when I was uh, in probably middle school, we took a church trip down a river. As we were going down the river, I was floating in this raft, and my brother was behind me. And we came up to the section. There's hardly any whitewater. It's a pretty slow-moving river. And so as it was going on like two miles an hour, every once in a while there'd be like a tree would fall down and there'd be a section that had a little bit of whitewater. So we'd yell out, whitewater! And I'm paddling over there. And as I get pulled into this little bit of whitewater going like three miles an hour, uh, woo, three times faster, woo, I'm going down. And all of a sudden I realized a tree had fallen this way, but a tree was right in front of me falling this way. And as I'm coming down, it's about to suck me under into, you know, a, a washing machine back forth underwater. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And I realize the danger I'm in. I yell back to my younger brother, Ryan, go the other way. Oh my, it's dangerous here. Do you ever listen to your older brother? No, if you're a younger brother, you think, he's holding out on me. The good stuff is over there. So he immediately paddles toward me. Meanwhile, I get sucked underwater under this log. And I'm underwater like, I'm going to die here. Meanwhile, what seemed like eternity, I get the, the tube gets shot out the other side. I'm holding out the tube. I'm alive! I look around. Ryan, don't! I'm not missing out. So then I yell my second piece of advice. Whatever you do, don't let go of the tube. The one way I got through this is I held onto the tube. I clung to the tube. Ryan comes up to that tree, way away from both edges of the side of the river. First thing he does, he kicks off the tube, and he bear hugs this tree that's also growing right up in the middle of the river. And there he is, rushing water on this side, rushing water on this side, and... If he at any time falls off, he's going to drop in and get sucked under into this thing without a tube. So I make my way back to shore. We were ahead of all the men in the church who were with us on this trip. They all come alongside and like, we got to save this guy. And I'll, I'll never forget this picture. Because what we did is man to man, guy to guy, we joined arms. And on the shore, this is the shore, we, we started by creating a line. And one guy was on the side and we were lined up along the shore and, and we began to wade out. As we wait out, the, the river took us toward my brother. And he's holding on to this uh, tree like nobody's business, clinging like his life you know, depends on it, and it probably did. And we made this human chain of men clinging to men, clinging to men, clinging to men, clinging to men. Yanked my brother off the tree and slowly began to pull one another back across the river. And Everyone was fine and everyone was rescued. And I remember that picture of just arms linked, arms linked, arms linked, clinging and fighting for something that matters. And it's always been an image for me of what it means to fight for one another, to encourage one another, to come along each other during difficult times. And my brother was clinging for his life. His life was worth fighting for. All of us are willing to put ourselves at risk in difficult circumstances because he was worth fighting for. And when I'm telling you, when it comes to marriage, whatever you're going through, that thing becomes more important than your commitment or linking arm. And I would just say, it's worth clinging to. It's worth fighting for. It's worth saying, this is one of those things in life worth fighting for. But the problem is you run out of steam. You run out of effort. You run out of reasons, right? You need a source of power. You need a source of strength. When my son was in sixth grade, I took him on a canoe trip for graduation from Terrace Park, I believe it was. And as we're going down the canoes, I was uh, one of the chaperones, and I saw a group of students about 100 yards in front of us, and their canoe had flipped over. But their canoe flipped over on a rock, and it was facing upstream. So not only was it full, but it had the full weight of all of the river, Little Miami, filling it up. 
So it weighs 600 pounds worth of water to begin with, and now it's got the full force of, of the uh, river pushing into it. And when it fell, one of the kids in the canoe fell, and the canoe came down on top of him. The water's only, like the little Miami usually is, maybe 18 inches, 2 feet deep. But it has pinned him underneath the canoe, and it's pushing his body under the water. I jump out of my canoe, I run 100 yards, and I get to the kid, and the canoe has got his leg pinned against a rock. The full weight of the river is pushing into the canoe, and it is pushing him under. And I am like, this kid's going to die right here and right now. And I grab his collar, and I'm holding him up as high as I can, just so he can breathe, while I'm trying to move the canoe, and it is not moving. Not just the 800 pounds of water, it's the full weight. And I'm trying to simultaneously cling to him, and my hand is killing me. I'm trying to push up and pull up. He gets a breath for a second, so I go down with both hands and try to yank up. And I'm telling you, I'm pushing against the entire flow of of river water. I'm getting down and bracing myself, and I'm thinking, I might have to break this kid's ankle to get him free, but he's going to die if I don't. I'm yelling for the other adults to get up there, and they're starting to run my way. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. And the stakes were high, and I'm clinging to him, and I'm pushing with everything I got to try and rotate this off the rock or push this against the piece. And eventually, we, this thing breaks free. We pull him out of the water. We didn't end up hurting him. And he's like, oh, scared to death, as you can imagine. And I don't know if it was six months or a year before my back went through all the therapy I had to go through because of that incident. It was painful. It was no time to think about it. But in that moment, I said, I'm going to cling and sacrifice because it's worth the price. And the story of Jesus, the historic account of Jesus, is that God came to earth because we were in trouble and we were pinned and we were drowning and he clinged to us when we didn't deserve it. He clinged to us when we were disrespectful. He clinged to us when we were selfish. He clinged to us and fought for us. And at his own cost, he pushed against the full weight of the world. To knock us free. To get us free. And until you realize that someone did that for you, sacrificed for you, died for you, or impatient for you, I don't know where you get the power to do it on your own. Marriage is too hard. Life is too hard to just try harder. You need access to somebody who's done unto you what you need to do unto someone. And that's why Jesus becomes the ultimate source of how we're able to cling during difficult times. We're able to say, this is worth fighting for, but I'm tired. But somebody fought for me, and he's willing to live in me to fight this battle with me. And that's where the power comes from. So cling. Cling. And number two, become. The Bible says there's a process by which we pursue this. There's a process by which we pursue this idea of marriage. Talked to a guy last week. I was uh, down in Dallas <laughs> speaking at the state capitol there. And while I was there, um, talked to a guy and he was just describing, talking a little bit about his uh, marriage and how every year he goes to a marriage seminar. And he says, I'm not really a marriage seminar kind of guy. I'm not a marriage counseling kind of guy, but I'm a sports guy. And I had a mentor in my life and he said this. He said, Tim, you got a great jump shot, but your jump shot doesn't stay the same. You've got to keep working on that jump shot. You've got to keep training that jump shot. If you want your jump shot to be the best it can possibly be, you've got to keep working at it. And the same thing is true of marriage. If you don't keep working at your marriage, it's not going to become everything it can. In fact, it's always going to be on a downhill slide if you're not working and improving it. He said, so as a sports guy who didn't like the idea of counseling or marriage, I said, yeah, it makes sense. I train as an athlete. I want to train to become a better spouse. We've made that a habit in our life. 
I another woman said this. She said the process of becoming a good spouse is true of a man and a woman. But this just came from a woman. She said, I've been married to five men in my life, but they've all been the same man. As I reflect back in my 30, 40 years of marriage, that man has changed multiple times. And I had to adapt. I've talked to husbands the same way. The, the woman you marry, the single version, may not be the same as the married version, which may not be the same as the married with kids version, with all the stress that comes with kids, which is not the same as the empty nest version. And so the goal of marriage in becoming and committing to one another is saying, we're going to adapt to each other during the different changes in life. We're going to adapt to one another. And that's what becoming is all about. Do you see what it said there in the Bible? It said in verse 22, they shall become one flesh. Not it happens when you're married. It's a process of becoming. I'm going to become. I'm going to work at adapting to what my spouse needs. And imagine two people who both are committed to becoming. To what you're saying, oh, that's exactly right, Chad. That's why I'm giving up on my marriage. I'm committed to becoming, but he's not or she's not. The beauty is that even if one person is adjusting to become, it can affect the other person. It's a symbiotic kind of relationship. Not codependent, but symbiotic in the sense that if you change a factor, it can impact the other person's behavior. Now imagine two people both trying to become, both trying to adapt, both trying to forgive, both saying, we want to become one oneness. We want to have a deeper friendship. We want to have a, a, a deeper love life. We want to have a deeper spiritual connection. The Bible describes that threefold relationship that just a few factors in our life. Let's, let's make our intimate life just a little bit more creative, a little bit more variety, a little bit more emphasis. Let's have our friendship. Let's have a little bit more shared interests. With all the kid years, let's have some date nights so we can have some fun together. Let's get away once a year. Let's, let's just improve that relationship. Let's find ways to pray, even if it's just laying in bed and squeezing hands when we're done and not talking out loud. If we can get our divorce rate down to one in 5,000, it'd be worth it. Let alone praying out loud, getting to one in 10,000. But the point is, the Bible says it's a process of becoming. And becoming is active. I adapt. I forgive. I love. I'm working at it. And again, the stats show that it's worth it. I can't tell you how many young couples get through those early years and then have kids and then become older couples. And it's about that midlife point. They're like, okay, we did our job. We got the kids launched. We've now become parallel strangers living under the same house. So many folks are giving up on marriage at the 20, 22, 25, 30-year mark. And this is such a pivotal transition because if you can push through this transition, the best is yet to come. In their book, The Second Half of Marriage, the writers gave statistics on several categories related to those in their 40s, under 40s, 50s, uh, and then over 60s. And here's what they found. In every area, financial, companionship, spiritual growth, mutual activities, individual activities, communication, my health, mate, spouse, ministry, friends and family, community, romance, household responsibilities, conflict, sex, education, relationship with kids, relationship with grandkids, retirement, relation to aging parents. In every category, the longer you stick with it and become, the greater the level of satisfaction went up. Which means often we give up too soon. The best is yet to come. It's worth fighting for. It's worth the process saying, I don't want to adapt. I always forgive first. He's never going to get it. Never, ever, ever. And that just crushes hope. Versus, I'm going to adapt. And I'm going to ask him to adapt. And whatever he or she does or doesn't do, I'm going to do my part. And the stats show that over and over again, the second half of your marriage can be the best half of your marriage. 
And again, we look to Jesus and say, Jesus is the example. The metaphor given all through the Bible is that he is a bridegroom preparing you and I, human beings, as the, as the bride for a great wedding ceremony. And quite frankly, that metaphor sort of breaks down for me because I don't like to think of myself as a bride. So think about him as the bridegroom for this metaphor. That as the bridegroom, he's the kind of bridegroom who sticks with you even when you're at your most unlovely moment. Even when you're the most disrespectful, you haven't earned it. This is what grace is about. And he's the kind of groom who says, I am for you no matter what. Yeah, but I broke your heart. I'm for you. Yeah, but I totally betrayed you. I stabbed you in the back. But I'm the kind of bridegroom who says, I will stick with you through thick and thin. And the oneness that God wants you to experience in marriage is the oneness Jesus has with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He knows what that oneness is like. He knows it's the the secret of the universe. He knows it's worth fighting for because he's lived it for eternity. And he says, in the same way I have oneness with God, I want oneness with you. I am the ultimate faithful one, the ultimate pure one, the ultimate strong one, the ultimate wise one. And I'm willing to fight for our marriage, Jesus would say. And the marriage metaphor is that. Jesus gets down on one knee and says to us, Will you marry me? I will commit to you for life. And that is why, unlike other religions or philosophies that you could lose your salvation or you could gain it and lose it and swap it, the marriage metaphor was a covenant metaphor where God said, I want a covenant with you that I will stick with you no matter what. No matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is. And whether you've been through a divorce or not, didn't you want that kind of spouse? And if you didn't have a spouse, you've had a spouse that that was unfaithful and did horrible things and terrible things and it broke in marriage. And and God gives allowances for the brokenness of human hearts. But the whole time, didn't you say, I really wish I knew and had the kind of spouse that I've always dreamed of, a faithful one, a loving one, an unconditional one. Jesus says, I am the thing you've always longed for. I am the thing you always want. I am available. I am committed. And I don't back down. And when you understand that God wants that and gives that to you, then you can pass some of that along to your spouse. Because you now have an engine for that in your life. Which is why the good news about marriage is it is worth fighting for. It's worth becoming and adapting. And there's some factors that we can actually give to our kids and grandkids to help them decrease their chances of divorce. Here's three. Three things that will drop your divorce rate to five, in the five percentile. If you marry after your mid to late 20s. I was married at 21, so I don't fit this. This would be an area where I would be out of the statistical norm. So I got married on my 21st birthday. But in general, if you get married in your mid to late 20s versus your early 20s, you're not quite as immature. A lot of those divorces occur in those, those early 20 years. Second, you have a college education. For whatever reason, that drops you into the 5% if both of you finish your college education. Third, if you can make it to your fifth anniversary. Which statistically says that those first five years are where the most divorce happened because you're like, it's just not worth it. Let's get out before there's kids. Oh, my goodness. I didn't realize how crazy you were. I didn't realize that was such a big deal to you. Oh, my goodness. Well, what planet are you from? But if you can commit through the first five years to become, to adapt, to cling, you start finding your dance. You start finding your rhythm. And you drop your divorce rate to five percentile. Shanti Feldhahn was sharing with a couple of folks. She said... Uh, that when you're in pain during a difficult time of marriage, all you think to yourself is 50-50, I guess we're the unlucky ones. I just got to get out of pain. And the myth is that divorce will get you out of pain. I hear that. The myth is that divorce will get you out of pain. 
Many of you in here have been divorced. Did that get you out of pain? Well, maybe three years later, but you went, oh my goodness, it was the most painful six months, one year of my life. Financially, I got devastated. Relationally, I got devastated. The kids were devastated. We didn't make our life less complicated. We made it incredibly more complicated. And now I still have to talk to my spouse about the things we fought about money and kids and sex. At least sex is out, but I still got to fight with her about money and kids. We do it via text so we don't have to hear each other's tone, right? It was painful. So the myth that that divorce will make your life easier or better, just go talk to some divorced people. And instead of letting that 50-50 statistic drive you to give up, instead to fight for it. She talked to another couple named Joe and Jana. And they said, you know what? If that's true that 72% of people are married to their first spouse, if it's true that 80% of marriage people are happy, then maybe instead of we might make it, we probably will make it, we want to fight for it, became the mindset as she began to talk in college campuses. And many who said, I've given up on the idea of marriage because marriage costs too much, cohabitation is better, they began to say, well, maybe marriage is worth it. She quotes Dr. Stanley, a marriage therapist, who shows that the cost of cohabitation is much higher than the cost of marriage. Here's what he says. Marriage is risky, but non-marriage is even riskier statistically. Living life in serial relationships, maybe having children outside marriage, will be harder. Some people identify marriage as the problem, but this fear about marriage causes them to do some things that increase the risks. Cohabitation is an example. They sample too much, trying to find the right partner. It's like a giant game of musical chairs. He goes on, he says this. Marriage is seen as having all the costs, and cohabitation is seen as having no costs. For example, if you live together before you're married, before you get engaged and married, it makes it more likely that you'll get divorced. I share this statistic with people all the time. And like that can't be true. Because our society says, if you live together, you've got a greater chance of being married and being successful. Now, you can believe that. You can believe whatever you want. But the stats say it's the opposite. Cohabitation makes you more uh, statistically probable of getting divorced than being married first. Why would that be? Because you're starting your relationship out on this foundation. We'll try each other out. We'll see if it works. So the very foundation of cohabitation is we're going to see if it works. The very foundation of marriage is we're going to fight for this no matter what. Does that make sense? Now, you can do whatever you want. God's not going to stop you from doing whatever you want. But my point is, if you want to have the best chance of having a great marriage... Being married before you're engaged, or engaged before you're married, versus cohabitation, marriage always sets you up for long-term success in relationship because you're starting with the very foundation of we're committed no matter what. So he finishes this by saying, it makes it more likely to get divorced. So that's a big cost. It's a dumb thing to do statistically. So how can we increase our hope factor? Well, in the same way that that self-fulfilling marriage prophecy works against us, it can work for us. In the same way you say, well, if we're not going to make it, I give less effort, therefore we don't make it. The flip side works as well. When I think we could make it, we could be one of those 80%. We could be one of those 66% from now, five years from now. We could be one of the 80% people are happy. If you think you're going to make it, you end up putting more effort into it and fighting for it and clinging to it. And therefore you end up making it because you have hope. So how can you have hope when things seem dim? Or how can you take a good marriage and make it great? Or how can you say, you know what, I haven't seen that kind of thing modeled, Chad. Those statistics don't seem true, but I wish they were true. I want to show you how you can increase your hope factor by threefold. 
Because that's what marriage needs. That's what she said. If you can inject hope into your marriage, it can grow. It can sustain. It can thrive. How do you increase your marriage factor by threefold? Let's do a little math again. Three times three times three is 27. But four times four times four is 64. There's a huge difference between the number 27 and 64. More than double. You might say, my marriage right now is at a 27. It's not good. And the idea of being a 64, that's still not great, but that's double what we have. Boy, I would love to have double what we have in friendship, double what we have in intimacy, double what we have in respect, double what we have in communication. So let's just take three areas of your life, just three. On a scale of one to ten, you're, you're probably never going to be a ten communicator, right? You're probably going to never ten really understand why a dish towel can't be used as a washcloth. You're just not going to understand that. That is truly beyond your comprehension. It's beyond mine. So you're never going to get to a 10. But couldn't you, wouldn't it be possible for you to take one area of your life and just tweak it a little bit to go from a 3 to a 4? Well, I could do that. If you could just take three areas of your marriage and not go from a 1 to a 10, just tweak it from a 3 to a 4, the cumulative impact of just increasing three areas of your life by just one little notch, we're going to communicate a little bit better. We're going to go on a date night for fun. Once a month. We're going to do a vacation once a year. We're going to try and prioritize in our budget and in our time a weekend apart. We're going to try and just put a little bit more creativity into our love life instead of just sort of doing the same old thing. If you just take three areas and just do a little tweak, look at the cumulative impact of just three tweaks in three little areas. More than double the marriage satisfaction. So let's look at that list again from the statistics. From the second half of marriage. Pick three areas. Three areas. It's just a list of some. How can we increase our romance? How can we have one common interest? Pick up a sport together? How can we have some time together that's not always revolved around the kids' activities? But I want you to pick three this week. Whether your spouse wants to do it or not, you pick three. And if you will do three and just tweak those three areas, watch the cumulative impact because you begin to learn that marriage is going to have ups and downs, but you learn to roll with it. You learn to roll with the changes. You begin to roll with the differences. You begin to roll with the difficulty. You begin to say, no matter what we go through, here's what we're going to do. Life is going to have its ups and downs, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn that when I'm down, I have a tendency to get stressed and irritable and mad and I say cruel things. I'm going to get a little bit more self-controlled. And God, I need your help to do it. God, I'm going to get a little bit less uh, passive-aggressive in my anger. Just a little bit less... Uh, unresponsive to your needs. I'm going to roll with it. And I'm adapted to difficulty. And if you will do that, and if I will do that, and if you will tap into the resource that is God who has the grace you need, the patience you need, you'll not only be able to roll with it, you'll be able to thrive in your marriage. Marriage, if you think you're going to make it, you give more effort. And through God's grace, you end up making it. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we just ask that each person that came in today, many, uh, God, we just ask you rejoice with those who rejoice, that you would just affirm their relationships in a great place, and you just want to applaud and celebrate that, that they're experiencing your very best. God, for some of us that have come in today, Father, we are just this morning thinking or even said out loud, I'm ready to give up. And God, I ask that you would infuse them with your strength and your power and your grace and your forgiveness that they will build a role with it, not out of fantasy thinking, but out of the reality of your love for them. 
And for those, Father, who come in today and have been through a divorce recently, God, that you would free them from guilt or condemnation. God, that you would uh, just remind them that you love working in messy circumstances and that none of us live up to the ideal. And in the midst of us uh, falling short of our own standards, let alone yours, that you are there to be the spouse we always wanted, to be the faithful one we always dreamed of, to be the one that can pick up the pieces and help put us back together, that you can truly restore for the years the locusts have eaten. And all these things, Father, I ask that you would identify in all of our lives those three areas that we could tweak. It's easy for me to come up with the three areas Beth needs to tweak. And each one of us can come up with the three areas that our spouse needs to tweak. But, Father, would you show us the three areas we need to tweak to have the best relationship as we become one together? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week. If you're new to the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left is the hearth room. If you come prepared to give, there's some offering boxes right outside the door. Thanks for being here today.